Welcome to Novant Health Healthy Headlines. I'm Gina DiPietro. Just what is mindfulness? Ask 10 different people, you might get 10 different answers. In this episode, Alicia Roberts speaks to Novant Health cardiologist Dr. Jonathan Fisher, a practitioner of mindfulness meditation for 10 years, about what it means to him and the many benefits it can bring to others in difficult times. You're a cardiologist. Why and when did you become interested in mindfulness? I became interested in mindfulness as part of uh, my own personal journey of healing from a whole number of psychological stressors that I had been struggling with for a long time. So it was back around 2008, 2009, when uh, after years of working hard, to get into medical school and then to get into residency and to achieve, I uh, started to recognize that I was missing out on gaps of my life. That feeling of missing out and there was a feeling of anxiety, which I couldn't fully understand, was there at a baseline. And then I had some uh, family tragedy, family loss. So my sister, who was 40 at the time, was diagnosed with a brain tumor. And she was my best friend, and she was my support when I was uh, going through my own struggles with anxiety and depression. Right. She was the one person who encouraged me to, to seek help, and that help was available. So I started getting help with therapy, and then it was later on when she died that another friend of mine said, well, there's this other thing that's called mindfulness. And she recommended a book to me by a, a Buddhist nun. His name was uh, Pima, P-E-M-A, Chodron, C-H-O-D-R-O-N. Mm-hmm. And so I read that book, and it captivated me, particularly one line which said, suffering begins to disappear when we can abandon the hope or belief that there is anywhere to hide. And so I, I resonated with that. I recognized that I had spent a lot of energy hiding in various places emotionally and physically from the challenges of life rather than learning to be with them. And I was lacking the skills. And one of the skills that was taught was uh, meditation. Mm-hmm. Around that same time, I Googled, literally into Google, how can I be happy again? Uh. And, and I discovered this scientific field, which I had never heard of, called positive psychology. Uh-huh. So, so I dug deep into the field of positive psychology, and lo and behold, one of the first books I read there, called The How of Happiness, talked about meditation as one of the key skills in being a happy, fulfilled person. Uh-huh. And so I was getting these, these signals uh, that maybe I should explore this thing called meditation. Right. And it was only later, as I dug deeper, that I realized that there were many types of meditation, you know, over 10 different kinds of meditation. And just one of them is mindfulness. Uh-huh. And so part of my journey was to explore various types of meditation, mind-body practices, yoga, qigong, tai chi, uh, all of these things which I had never learned about in my medical education or growing up, as I began to experiment with them, and I was literally doing experiments on myself by practicing this thing or that thing and noticing differences, I recognized that there were changes that were happening in my ability to be with the challenges of life and also to start noticing the joys in life mm-hmm. as well. And then um, slowly other people started to recognize the difference. Wow. That's very inspiring. So how would you rate its effectiveness for you? I mean, if you were at a one 
in 2009, where do you feel you are now in terms of happiness? I think if I looked at an overall average, and, and you know, it's not just a theoretical. Part of my own journey uh, has been to track my own sense of well-being and happiness. Uh, again, like a scientist, I want to look at the evidence. And there's a lot of uh, judgment about happiness theory and in general because scientists and doctors may say, oh, that's a bunch of hooey, right? right. Show me the numbers. And the challenge is that this is, involves a different type of research. You can't measure the numbers. It's, it's all subjective because no one can tell you how happy you are. Mm-hmm. And so we use measures, you know, like you were saying, one to ten scale. So I'd say I'm, I'm on a seven to eight, um, on average. Uh-huh. Uh, you know, <laughs> with COVID, with COVID and with some physical struggles that I have, perhaps it's a five or a six sometimes. I think there's a number of reasons for that. So on the one hand, these practices, and we could we could dive into whichever, we can focus just on mindfulness itself. There are several different angles where it helps. So one of them is it makes moments of challenge and suffering less intense, less severe. And on the other hand, it takes it allows us to appreciate moments of joy and pleasure, to notice them first of all, and then to savor them and linger with them second of all. So there's kind of a there's a dual effect. There's a reduction in the dealing with, perceiving, and responding, reacting to the challenges. And then there's also an intensifying of the positive emotions that if we learn to pay attention, we realize we're missing a lot of them. Mm-hmm. For those who don't know much about practicing mindfulness, can you explain what it is and kind of what it looks like practically? There are many definitions of mindfulness, and if you were to ask 10 people, even teachers of mindfulness, you'd probably get uh, 10 different answers. Uh, So the answer that I would give comes from the microbiologist who was also a meditation expert and teacher named John Kabat-Zinn, who is the reason that you and I are talking right now. Because in 1979, he discovered at the University of Massachusetts that patients who are suffering with chronic and severe ongoing pain that had failed all other therapies, he welcomed them into a clinic and developed a protocol. He taught them mindfulness, and after just eight weeks, he had achieved pain reductions for them and with them that no one else had seen before. And so over the next 40 years, these practices are now so widespread that they're in most major academic medical centers. And the definition that he uses is, of paying attention to the present moment on purpose, non-judgmentally. Another way of putting it is practicing being completely aware of what's happening inside you in terms of your thoughts, feelings, emotions, and outside you in terms of sounds, events, conversations. Being fully aware and accepting whatever's happening in that moment without having an immediate a reaction to it. Mm-hmm. So creating some space where you can then decide how you want to respond to whatever is happening around you. So that would be one definition of mindfulness. And in terms of how it comes into play, it comes into play potentially in every moment of every day. So, so much of the suffering that we experience as humans is because of the thoughts and reactions that we have that are happening without our awareness. So we all have this inner narrative, this little voice in our head that's saying, oh, this is good, this is bad. Uh, 
But so often it's going on without our recognizing it. And it can drive us to do things and act in certain ways that we may not um, find consistent with our highest values. And so, for example, if I have a teenage son and there are challenges that are happening, there are frustrations that are happening, if I'm not aware of feelings inside myself of, let's say, frustration uh, or anger that are rising, it may be so late that I don't even catch it and I may yell. In frustration, whereas if I practice mindfulness, I pause if I hear him say something or if I say something. I notice the feelings in my body. I give a name to the emotions that are arising. And then I can choose whether I get carried away with those emotions or whether I want to act according to what I say are my highest intentions or values, which are more often not anger. More often I want to be somebody who is kind or compassionate or loving or supportive or nurturing. And um, and so it's really over and over reminding ourselves of what's most important and checking in to see uh, what's arising moment to moment. Why do you think we don't do that? The answer comes from the nature of our human mind. And the answer comes, uh, I think, from evolutionary psychology, which is a field of science that looks at the human mind, human emotions, human behavior, and asks the question, how did we, after millions of years of evolution, end up reacting in this way? And it starts with a recognition that our emotions may seem to reflect reality. Our thoughts in our own mind may seem to reflect things as they are, But if we look deeper, so often we are misled by our own thoughts and our own emotions, which are just there to do a couple of things. The way I would answer your question is to say, our minds are not designed to keep us happy. (laughs) Our minds are not designed to keep us fulfilled. Our minds are designed, if you go back in time, to keep us safe, to keep us safe from danger. The important fact here is that the dangers that existed as the human mind evolved were different than the dangers that exist today. So going back two million years, we had animals that don't exist anymore, so saber-toothed tigers, uh, natural disasters, the elements around us, which were threatening to us. We also had very small tribes. So we might live in a tribe of 10 or 20 people, And if we did or said something that put us at risk of being rejected by our tribe, it wasn't a matter of a little loneliness. It might be a matter of life and death if you were kicked out of your tribe because you said the wrong thing. So now if you fast forward a few million years and you put yourself in a society where we have uh, the Internet and you have social media, and if somebody uh, does or says something that you don't like, or if you maybe put yourself out there and make a statement, and other people say, I don't like that, or I don't like you, our mind may go back in time and fear that we will be rejected from our tribe. And so we are wired to protect our position in our tribe, to protect our physical safety and our emotional safety. And so you may want to be fully aware and to be motivated by your higher desires about your future life all the time, but there are primitive parts of the brain that are just not made to let you do that. And so there's a constant balancing and rebalancing that if we choose to do it, we can literally pack into this ancient wiring of our brain and we can 
choose to activate the more modern parts of our brain, what's called the prefrontal cortex. And in order to strengthen that and become skillful at mindfulness, it's important to practice that over and over and over again, just like if you were playing a violin mm-hmm. or if you were going to the gym, you wouldn't expect to have strong muscles after lifting one dumbbell one time. You'd say, of course not. You have to practice. And it's the same thing with rewiring these ancient brains to strengthen the more modern parts that allow us to connect with our highest values. I kind of wonder about meditation a little bit. We've talked about that a lot. And I think that word intimidates some people. Do you have some tips on approaching meditation that are very kind of baseline, very simple? Yes. So the I think the reason people are thrown off with meditation is right away what comes to mind is the Dalai Lama or somebody in purple flowing robes floating and sitting in perfect <laughs> calm and tranquility. And we say, there's no way in you know what that I could ever achieve that. That's not for me. I don't live in a cave or a monastery somewhere. I have like I have kids and I have animals and I have a chaotic life. I can't achieve that. Um, So what I think is helpful is to remember that meditation is not a state of pure bliss. Meditation is not a perfect achievement of higher consciousness and perfection. It has nothing to do with any of those things. Now, maybe one out of a million people will achieve that, but that's not what it's about. The word meditation literally comes from the word um, meditare, which means to measure which, by the way, is the same root as the word medicine. And the way I interpret it is meditation is simply measuring or noticing what's happening in our own mind, in our own body. So I'd like to take away that mysticism that you have to achieve some higher state and just recognize that meditation means just stop with the iPhone, stop with the television and the news, stop with the whatever you're saying or or interpreting, and just notice what's happening. That's all meditation is. Now, on a practical level, how can we accomplish that? Take the pressure off. Just say, I'll I'll send, you know, one breath. So start off with just one breath. This next breath that you take in, can you, instead of thinking about your laundry or what's, what's missing from your shopping list or what happened yesterday, can you only simply notice the air moving in and out of the nostrils or in the belly? Because that's the only thing that's happening in this moment is the experience of the body. And um, in this moment, memories aren't real and future plans aren't real. So I would say start off with just paying attention to one breath, then expand it and set a timer for one minute. And just notice what it feels like to be in the body uh, without judging, without trying to push certain feelings away or trying to make certain feelings feel more uh, pronounced, just saying, can I just be here without rushing off to do something else? So that would be one minute. And then eventually you can spend five minutes or 10 minutes or 20 minutes. Uh, Or even as I was lucky enough to do two years ago, spend seven days uh, at a Zen monastery in silence. So there's no limit to how much meditation you can practice. I would say for people who've never done it before, just start by seeing how hard it is to pay attention to only one or two breaths in and out without the mind going off somewhere else. Are prayer and meditation similar? Very similar. So there are centering meditations and prayer meditations. 
Uh, I would say that there are there are really two broad categories of meditation. There is a meditation form, what's called focused attention, where you focus all of your attention on one thing. And that could be a prayer. It could be the words of a prayer. It could be a feeling of love. It could be staring at a candle. It could be noticing your breath. It could be just listening to sound. So the idea there is we're training that ability to focus our attention. Mm-hmm. Now, prayer happens to have all of these other elements of gratitude, appreciation, love, etc. cetera, um, but it would fall into the general realm of focused attention, mm-hmm. where, where once your mind wanders off of the prayer and starts thinking about the news again, you say, oh, <laughs> let me bring it back to this prayer. So that really centers you. Uh, the other general category of meditation is what's called open awareness where you're not focusing on any one thing, what you're practicing is very different. And it's practicing being completely receptive, opening up all of your senses to the the tastes, the sounds, the smells, uh, the thoughts, the feelings. And what's it like to allow all of the nerves to wake up and to let everything kind of rush in at once, um, And that's something, again, that takes a lot of practice. It's not something you would want to jump right into. But there are benefits in practicing our awareness, especially when it comes to facing the challenges of COVID and in our everyday life. So much of the time, we don't even realize what solutions are there because we're not open to them. And so practicing that open awareness can can help us be more receptive and aware. If you want to start doing this and feel the benefits of it, you can't start big and you can't judge yourself. Is that right? Absolutely correct. When we say we can't judge ourselves, I would say it's almost impossible for many of us to not judge ourselves. Mm-hmm. So I would be very careful and tell people that it's perfectly normal to hear that voice of self-judgment saying, oh, you're not doing it right. Oh, you missed a week. Um, uh, there you go again. You can't even sit still for five seconds. There's something wrong with you. So recognize that that voice is not the truth, first of all. That voice of judgment is more like a suggestion that's coming from part of the brain that is trying to help you, but um, it's helpful to just say, I hear that voice of self-criticism and self-judgment. I'm going to choose to let you just chatter on, but I'm not going to pay attention to you right now because that voice will come back. And over time, though, it gets quieter and quieter. Uh, and that's exactly right. It's can we do this without judging ourselves? Mm-hmm. We're about to close a crazy year. How has practicing mindfulness helped you get through 2020? I didn't realize that the, the practices and the skills that I've been developing and training over the last 10 years, I would have to call upon each and every one of them <laughs> just about every day in order to make it through all the stresses of Work life, personal life, uh, having a physical body that isn't always doing what I'd like it to do. Uh, and so the difference that it's made is I would say the me before I discovered these practices would have gotten stuck in his mind and gotten stuck in running through thoughts over and over, ruminating, well, why did I do this? And predicting a future that may never happen. I can't believe what's happening in our world, everything's going to turn out badly. And I used to be really good at imagining a thousand and a one things that could go wrong. Uh 
I thought that that was a really good skill to have. And, and then I realized that maybe that's not the best skill to have. And maybe a, a more useful skill is to just practice letting those thoughts come and go, recognizing that memories and predictions are just thoughts and they're not true by themselves. And there's a lot more pleasure and joy to be had by focusing on what's in front of me, whether that's my child or my spouse or my pet or a patient or a friend without letting my mind run to the past and run to the future. So um, so I call upon these skills every day just to balance out the stresses of, of what's going on in the world. Is this an important part of self-care? I think it's the most essential part of self-care, mm-hmm. mindfulness. And I know that's a bold statement. And the reason I say that is what mindfulness is, is it's training our ability to notice what's happening in this moment. And unless we notice either aches and pains or joys and pleasures, how can we know what care we are needing? So if I don't notice hunger arising in my stomach, how do I, how will I even know that I need to nourish myself right now or eat something healthy? If I, if I don't realize that I'm feeling sluggish, how do I know that it's partly because I didn't sleep well last night because I didn't set up a good routine and because I ate pizza instead of having something a little healthier. Mm-hmm. So so mindfulness allows a moment-to-moment fine-tuning and adjustment of self-care so that we can actually achieve what whatever our goals are for ourselves. So I think it's a critical element in taking care of ourselves. Right. What are some ways that we can use meditation and mindfulness to not only reflect on 2020 and celebrate making it through a tough year, but strengthening ourselves and preparing ourselves for the year to come? That's a great question. I will add one caveat to the practice of mindfulness, which is I learned this the hard way. Mindfulness by itself is not meant to get you anything or to get you anywhere. Mindfulness is actually just meant to get you to where you already are without resisting it so much. Mm-hmm. Um, and I would say then at that point, when it comes to goals and outcomes and ambitions, I would say that's not mindfulness itself. That has more to do with what you might call positive psychology, which says, how can I live my own best possible life and how can I share gifts and help with people that I love? The practice of positive psychology says, well, how about I start with five minutes each day just journaling, saying, what would I like my life to feel like a year from now? Mm-hmm. Instead of just waiting for each day to go by and just seeing what happens around me and in the news and in the world and being kind of a victim blown back and forth, what if I flip it on its head and say, what if I can create a life that I want and just start with my imagination like we talked about before? Well, who would be surrounding me a year from now? What kind of a person would other people say I am? How would the people describe me? And creating an image of yourself as you would like yourself to be, and then kind of making little steps, baby steps each day in that direction. So mindfulness helps us let go of all the whirlwind of stresses and worries long enough so that we can then create an image of our of our best possible future. Is there anything else you'd like to add or anything I missed? I would add one thing, and that is um, the message that my sister Andrea, who passed away uh, a decade ago, uh, shared with me years before she was even sick, 
when she saw how much I was struggling from stress and anxiety and unhappiness. And she said, can you just be kind to yourself? Mm-hmm. And I didn't know it then, but that was the practice of self-compassion. Mm-hmm. And my message is mindfulness is not enough. Mindfulness is not enough. We also need a healthy dose of self-compassion, recognizing that we are all going through a challenging time Mm -hmm. and that many of us have a tendency to judge ourselves for going through this or not reacting as well as we'd like to. Can we just press pause on that voice of criticism and be kind to ourselves, recognizing what we are doing well Mm -hmm. and uh, connecting with others and maybe having a little more compassion for others who are also going through their own challenging times. Gina DiPietro here again. To recap, as Dr. Fisher explained, with practice, mindfulness can help us let go of stress and worries to create an image of our best possible future. It doesn't need to be intimidating, and combined with a healthy dose of self-compassion, it can help us meet challenging times. For more practical health tips and information, visit Novant Health Healthy Headlines. And if you enjoyed this podcast, please take a moment to rate and review us, and subscribe to this and all the Novant Health podcasts. Thanks for listening.